Dr. Lair, thank you so much for another visit to the ITA College Tennis Coaches podcast. I'm very excited to be joining you again. I'm hoping we can cover some topics that really resonate with your coaches. I have great respect for what they do and the challenges they face. I do a lot of work with coaches, so I value what they do, and I'm, I'm hoping I can add some insight that may further their uh, competencies. No doubt. And, and thank you for all your uh, support of, of college tennis. I know how much uh, you love this space and, and uh, I'm always excited to, to speak with you. And last time we had you on, we were talking more about uh, dealing with COVID and, and the aftermath right. of that. But today we're going to get more into culture and management. So obviously you work with a lot of C-suite managers and, and, and you know, we're, we're trying to get the message across to our coaches that they're also CEOs, right? They're CEOs of their, their program uh, and, and treating the job more from a business perspective at times. But sometimes a coach will hit a plateau and, and they feel like they, they've got the program just to a certain level, but they struggle to take it to the next level. And I'm interested when you're, when you're meeting and helping C-suite managers, what are some of the things that you're trying to help them with to break through those barriers and, and get them to that next level? And that's really, that's really the issue, Dave, is understanding how, how do human beings make change? That was really the, the centerpiece of the Human Performance Institute's entire curriculum was because everyone comes there, they want to change something. They don't come there just because they want to have an experience. There's something that they actually feel like they should be doing and can't. Mm. And there's a barrier that stands in the way. So our entire program was built two and a half day immersion into this really difficult thing that human beings have to somehow come to grips with. And that is, how do we change? How do we change directions in lives, particularly when there's risk involved? And change is hard. We don't like change. We like things to be the same. And I can tell you this, Dave, that Change is deeply personal. You can't rally this without kind of going deep inside yourself and trying to understand what it is that you really want. And, and why, you know, we found that the single most powerful force in getting people to change was an understanding of what the purpose for doing it was. But they had to rally a deep abiding sense of this is what I'm supposed to be doing and it's the right thing to do based on their values. And I, I'm, a very hard, I'm a very stern believer that as human beings, what we should be doing is pushing the envelope and getting better in everything we do. We have to raise the bar every single day. I don't care what your age is. I don't care. I work you know, with all kinds of interesting and sometimes very powerfully moving groups like Wounded Warriors. And they have to find a way to change and they have to improve even compared to what they used to be able to do, they have to somehow find a way to get better. And we started out with this notion that we have a story that has kept us from changing so far. We've kind of organized this in a way, and it's whatever that story is, I call it your old story, it's really your current story. And it has not allowed you to make the changes you wanna make. And so we need a new story, a new story that actually gets you to where you want to go. And that new story has to have a sense of purpose. And the purpose, if it's really going to drive you, has to be something bigger than yourself. It can't be just about you. Why the heck are you, do you want to go to this next level? If it's strictly financial for you, 
probably uh, not going to do it. It's got to be more compelling than just simply a financial equation. You know, Joseph Campbell in his hero's journey, it's a brilliant, he's one of the most brilliant guys. I love his work. You know, he has power of ritual and so many great uh, books that he's authored, but the hero's journey, he said, is basically the story of life that we have to go into this dark cave alone. It's a, it's kind of a solitary journey to decide what you're going to do in this change process. And it really is confronting your values and it's confronting kind of your own personal demons. Why won't you do this? What's standing in your way? What are your fears? And the more you can confront those, the more you can kind of tame those demons and understand this is what I need to do. I will be better. Everyone will be better if I push ahead in this, in this area. And even if I don't, I'll have no regrets at the end. I will have at least given it my best shot. And that new story will free you, free you to not have, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. I should, you know, you basically say, I'm going to commit to going to the next level. I'm going to push myself to a new level. I'm going to get better. I'll take that new challenge on, whether it's a new certification, a new way of looking at things that actually are outside the box for me. And it takes courage. So all I can say is it's a personal journey and it has to be done with a lot of hard internal work. And we need a great story to get a great change of direction. Mm -hmm. And will you have clients actually physically write out that new story? Is that one of the steps you'll take with them? That's what we do. We have them write their old story and they mm -hmm. can see that with the story that they have, they can't get there. You know, and then we write, then they have an opportunity to write a story that's based on truth, that is consistent with their sense of purpose and values in life, what they really want, and inspires them to take action, courageous action. And they have to go through and create that story. And then they feed that story constantly every day, more information, more energy. It comes to life. It's a new way of organizing this part of their life. And suddenly things start to change. It's quite miraculous, actually. Hmm. And probably to date at the Institute, we've had over 400,000 people go through this and uh, test it out. So it's not like this is something that we just came up with on Thursday. This is like, this is evolving kind of a method that I have so much confidence in. And it's the way I work with everyone that I coach or work with, whether it's a CEO or a regular collegiate player or world-class player on, on one of the professional tours in the world in a particular sport. And so from what I've, I've read, you've authored 17 books to date. You're, you're working on another one right now, which is uh, mind blowing, but obviously the type of focus, the dedication to accomplish such a phenomenal, you know, feat. Uh, I, 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 I can't even imagine the type of focus that's required to just sit yourself down hour after hour and put, you know, pen to paper or, you know, type keys on the computer. But obviously the Western world's really struggling with focus right now. And, and I think our coaches are also uh, being challenged with maybe their own focus, but also how do they get their players to focus more, not just on the court, but off the court as well, stay, you know, true to the academic goals that they've set for themselves. Absolutely. and. and stay on, on track with the, their time management and everything else. And, and so how are you, again, maybe helping coaches or, or managers uh, with that focus issue? 
So it really is an interesting question for me, uh, Dave, because it, it's something that I have to apply in my own life. And it really is, if I have a secret sauce or if I have something that I really believe is the organizing principle that enables me to do, when I look at all the things that I have to accomplish in one day, including this time for writing and thinking and calling and players and watching the right matches and getting, I mean, all this stuff, it's a lot of stuff. And I'm, I wasn't a particularly organized in, in school or anything else. I wasn't particularly organized, but I started to realize that all athletes have training logs and those training logs. If you, if you watch a great physio, or if you go into a rehabilitation therapist, they're very detailed in what they want to have done during that session. Hmm. Well, I expanded that and every day, and I don't know for how many years I have to throw them out because they, I have 365 of these every single year. And I start out with the date, the time I'm up, you know, whether it's Monday, Wednesday, Tuesday, the whatever, and then and the, and the things that I am going to accomplish and tend to accomplish on that day and the energy I need to bring and the focus for that particular activity. So I did this with athletes for years and I've had Jim, if it's so great for them, why don't you apply it to yourself? And I mean, I have a system now that I wish I could just transport into everyone's life because I will tell you, it organizes me. I usually get up at four or five in the morning, but I have to go to bed pretty early. But by 10 in the morning, I look at all the things I've accomplished that I really wanted to get accomplished. And if I didn't have that organization, my brain would be all over the place. I mean, there's so many distractions. I have a million distractions, phone calls, emails. I have seven grandkids, three kids, all the things that are going on in my life. And I really feel like there's a, there's a real gem there that you can access. It's a, it helps you to organize first thing in the morning and you get up and you get into routines, a routine of actually organizing your life, organizing how you want your day to go and what you really believe are the highest priorities in your day. So if it's a student, what are the biggest priorities? When do you have to have that paper in? By what, by what day? How, and what time is practice today? When do we leave for the trip? And you actually work backwards. How am I going to get that homework done? And what are the times that I actually will have free to kind of enjoy myself and kind of you know, get a little R&R for myself in this crazy schedule? So you kind of work all that out and within... In the beginning, it seems onerous, but after a while, you so look forward. The first thing you want to do is sit down, and then you kind of check, as a great coach does, here's what I did, here's what I didn't do, here's what I'm going to do today to make sure that I catch up. And then I look at, well, how many things do I have in the next four or five hours? What do I have tomorrow? What do I have next week? And how do I work backwards from that? So I really believe that organization and the the integration of time and energy. When do you get up in the morning? Like with Dan Jansen, we monitored 21 variables every single day for two entire years. I have every single one of his logs. And that kept him so organized, the stress and recovery. And you know, if he were to do yoga, if he was to do his own fitness in, in a particular way with his physio by himself, his stretching, time alone, going into his war room, all of those things 
if they just don't happen by chance. And you know, you don't win an Olympic gold medal against all odds by chance. And so I really try to impress upon people that this is a skill that you can hone and you can start very simply and within a relatively short time and keep every single one of those logs. And you can go back and reference it. You can, I'll have notes that I will take on the podcast today. What would I like to do better if I have another opportunity to, to interact with, with Dave and these coaches? I wanna, I just, I wanna see if I can find a way to improve because that's what gets me excited. I wanna get better in everything I do. And if I can do that and I build a culture of everyone around me pushing that envelope, that's what's exciting about life. It's just getting better, improving. I can get better in something every single day of my life. And that's what I'm driven to do. But I have to organize my life where it's all chaos. I think a lot of us can relate to that. But um, yeah, as we talk about, again, I guess this next generation and, and Generation Z or, or whatever we're calling them these days that are entering, well, they're entering the workforce now, but coaches are, are trying to manage, trying to help them, trying to coach them. But as I speak with coaches, I think they're struggling. And maybe every generation, right? Every, every generation thinks the next generation are lazy and uh, undisciplined and unfocused and all the rest of it. But obviously, again, you're, you're working with C-suite managers that are managing this next generation of, of, uh, of the workforce. And, uh, and my sense is they have some frustrations too, because this next generation have a different uh, approach to maybe their work-life balance and, and where work fits in their life. And can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the conversations you're having with those managers or coaches? Yeah, that's a, it's another great question. And it's very true. You know, I think we, it's always helpful to have perspective. I, I know that all of us, we can just take a moment and ref, get a little bigger picture. All of a sudden, the whole reality of things change. You know, when you look at uh, all the World War, prior to World War II, I, I'm kind of a, you know, I love to look at the history of things and this whole thing. So kids, when just before I was brought up as a young boy, it was called the silent generation. And that came up till about um, 1945 or something like that. And those kids were told that, you know, you're to be, be seen, not heard. So they never said anything. You ask them anything, they, they said nothing. Parents were tough. And, you know, you were to be in the background. You're smart. If you're a smart ass, you get whacked. And then after that, you know, between about 45 and in, in the 60s, mid-60s, you had the baby boomers. And that's when I was brought in. And that's a different. Those folks were not necessarily told to, you know, just keep your mouth shut and just follow the rules. That's a different generation. And then after that, we had Generation X. And that was in the, in the 60s and the early 80s. And that's kind of an, a new generation. Everybody had to kind of adjust to those kids, all the teachers, all the coaches, and then in the 80s and then into the mid-90s, we had the millennials. And this is uh, Gen Y. And that's another whole deal. And then uh, today, or really not today, but right up till more recently, it's called Generation Z. And now they're called from 2010 about, I think, somewhere to, to today, it's called Generation Alpha. And every one of these groups of kids are different. They came into the world from a different kind of time. 
a different culture, different expectations. And so today we have kids that often are viewed as being, they've had it too easy. Life has been too easy. They're too pampered. They're too entitled. They're, uh, they're too soft. They're, they have no passion for hard work. You know, how do you motivate these kids? They're space cadets, you know? They have no passion for achievement. And you look at these kids as generation alpha, as they're called, they're really conditioned to screen time. They spend so much time, and they have since they've been little tiny kids, looking at screens on their computers, on their cell phones, and getting them to, to break away from that is almost like, this is an addiction. It's just almost like crack cocaine. You can't pull it away from them. And um, they have lost a lot of them now, maybe not with those in the tennis world, but an awful lot of kids have lost their physical literacy. They don't even move anymore. So they become, you know, kind of, they, they just don't even understand how valuable physical and important movement is to health, physical health, emotional health, mental health, and even character health. And uh, they have far more allergies, far more complaints. There's obesity issues everywhere. They have a whole variety of health problems that we never saw in other generations. It's because they're not moving and because they're stationary all the time. And now they're going into college tennis. And the college coaches are going, how do I deal with these people? This is a whole different deal. It has nothing to do with the way I was raised. And here's, here's my response. This is what I say to anyone as an executive. Um, and you're going to talk about this, I know, maybe later. But it's such an important thing for me. And that is that you say to the kids, you know, I really don't know what kind of world you've come from. It's different than my world. And uh, I'm gonna do my best to understand, but I'm gonna create a culture here. And I'm gonna tell you what my priority is. It's plain and simple. That's the most important thing I do with every single one of you. And that's to help each one of you become a stronger, more resilient, a person of stronger character. In every single way, you become a better human being because you're on this team. And I don't care, you know, if you came from a strong work ethic, all I know is anything that gets into the way of that, I am going to not be a fan of. So if a lot of screen time, computer time, a lot of things maybe you're accustomed to, all I'm going to tell you is I'm going to help you grow up and become a better, stronger, more resilient human being of great character. That's my job. And I'm going to use tennis to help you get there. We're going to leverage every asset we have on this team to help you become better. And I know as a performance psychologist, health ignites performance. That if I get you healthier, you're going to be a better performer on this team, not just in tennis, but in every area of your life. My responsibility, my mandate as a coach in your life is to help you become a better human being. And I won't understand completely what you've come from. And for some of you, the things I expect of you may be out of the box, but that's the way we're gonna create a culture here that I believe is most importantly, attending to your future, not just in tennis, but in life. Yeah, and just around that, uh, we have a lot of young coaches that listen to this podcast that are maybe transitioning from being an assistant coach to a head coach.
-hmm. and they maybe have not thought a whole lot about what is the type of culture that they want to have their their team adopt embody uh, be a part of so if if you were working with a brand new head coach who's just inherited somebody else's players you know maybe recruiting a new player some new players themselves how can they even get that process started of I guess, imagining and then implementing the type of culture they would like to see in their team? Well, first of all, I would say culture is everything. And that's what a coach does. That's your job. You create a culture, a culture of high performance and health, because the two are, that's what drives extraordinary human beings. And that culture is going to have physical elements. It has emotional elements, has mental elements, actually has character or spiritual elements. And you have to craft what that culture is going to be for you. If you've been associated with a great coach in the past, and I know all the coaches have been, and you've been associated with coaches who have never really been even remotely what you want to be. In fact, they were the antithesis of what you want to be. The beauty of being a head coach is that that this is your opportunity. And you have to be so clear. Take your time. And really think about if you were on this team as a player, what kind of environment would you like created around you that would bring your best out? And it has to include everything from how we conduct our workout, how we conduct our practice sessions, our matches. What do we think about cheating? What do we, how do we handle problems on the team itself? Problems with me as your coach, problems with assistant coaches, with uh, jealousy, with all the crazy stuff that goes on inside schools and you know grades and all the trash talking that goes on inside the team and outside it. How are we going to contain all of that and build a culture that makes us all better? And so you have an opportunity to spell that out and all the rules. And I would ask for input, but you are the final say on all these things. It is your chance to be the coach and you have to decide it. You can't just hand it over. You can have a captain, you can have that, but ultimately this is a culture that you can change it. And hopefully coaches will say, you know, I started out, I thought this was the best way. I don't think it is the best way. And you've helped me understand that. I'm gonna fall on my sword here. And I'm always looking for feedback. I'm not gonna always accept it the way you want it but I will do my best and let me know. I mean, but yeah, if you're not happy, I want you to come to me. Don't go everywhere else. Let me know what your concerns are. I will do everything I can to rectify it. And if we can't, we'll live with it. But I will tell you, I want an honest, as much transparency as we can. I want a culture of character, honesty, integrity. I'll do my best to represent those things. And we're gonna get better at this as the season. I'm a new coach. But I want you to know that I have your best interests at heart and the team's best interests. And what we're going to do as a team are going to be much better. I want you to exist here, not for yourself, but for this team. Everything is going to be to better all of us as a team. And that's going to be my decision-making priority. How we all can grow and become better as a unit, not just simply making you a star. And that's all part of your definition of building a culture. And you have to put it in writing and you have to get the rules out and you've got to stand behind it. And number one, 
If you don't live it, the whole thing is a complete fiasco or a, it's a hypocrisy. And you have to represent everything you say you want in the culture and you have to represent it brilliantly. Or they will look at you and say, this is a scam. You, you say you want that from everybody else, but you don't actually live it yourself. And we're not going to live it either. And that's where the whole thing breaks down. And then how would you encourage coaches to, <laughs> I guess, develop that self-awareness and be able to evaluate themselves to recognize when they are not following through with what they're stating is important for their program, for their culture, how their players should behave? Um, because sometimes uh, folks struggle with that, right? They, they, they lack that self-awareness and, and ability to, to be brutally honest with themselves, right? Well, it's a, it's a very tough situation for coaches because you want to have humility. You have to recognize you don't know it all, but you also have enough confidence that you believe you can move ahead and make decisions that are tough decisions for players and the team. And you're going to get criticized. You have to accept the fact that you're not gonna make everyone happy. But if you actually make decisions and you vet them through what you believe are the highest priorities for you, and you bring that back to the team and say, here's why I made this decision. Here's why I have put you hold here for the next two matches. I really was unhappy with the way you conducted yourself on the court. I can't allow this. This is not what I would expect from a CEO. If I was a CEO in a company, I wouldn't want my employees acting like this. I'm looking at the big picture of your life. Maybe you can win a match by throwing temper tantrums and doing all this, the gamesmanship. That's not how I want to win. That's not how I want you to win. So I'm explaining to you why I'm doing what I'm doing. You may not agree with it. And in fact, it may cost us the next two matches. But I'm going to tell you, I'm standing behind this. And if you don't like it, you always can leave this team. I hope you don't, but that's the way I'm going to operate. And if it doesn't work for you, I'm sorry, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And the more you represent that and help them understand that you're trying to implement something on the behalf of everyone, and you're creating a culture that everyone will someday look back on and say, that was maybe one of the best coaching environments I've ever been in because he or she was real, because they really represented my interests as a human being, as a player, as a person first. And then that was actually represented as a team, as a, as a member of a team in a very important way. So coaches create culture. If you let the players create the culture, what you're gonna get, you, you have input, but you have to be the final arbitrator. And if the players take over, the, the inmates are going to run the, the asylum. <laughs> so yeah. you really have to, but you have to be humble enough and open enough for suggestion. If you can't take criticism, you'll never be a coach. Mm -hmm. But it has to be criticism taken in the right way. I mean, given in the right way, respectfully, you're going to criticize them respectfully, never in public. Help them understand what it is. You have to have a lot of one-on-ones a lot of time, a lot of frustrations, but they need to understand you care about them more as a person than you do about them as a player. When they get that, you're probably going to resolve the difficulties and there will be nothing but difficulties every single day.
Okay. Um, we, we talked a little bit about change earlier, and there's a lot of change in the NCA space right now, or college athletics in general, conference realignment, name image likeness, NCA constitution changes, Alston case, I could go on. And, and sometimes, again, there's, there's um, the only constant right is change, but, but people fight against that. And, and we, even the, the top decision makers in the college athletic space, they can't even predict what's going to happen here 18 months, three years from now, five years from now, there, there's, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, a lot of change in the air. And, and so how would you encourage coaches to maybe accept that that change is coming, embrace it, and then also try to be part of the solutions, you know, get ahead of, of rather than it being forced on them? So it's a very important adjustment that we all have to make, and we have to make it every day. The world that we know will not be there tomorrow, and that those that recognize it and accept it will see opportunities that everyone else who's cussing the change will miss. Change is inevitable, and you're either going to be part of the future or you'll be stuck in the past. And if you just look at what the changes that have occurred in technology in the last five years, it's just, it's a blur. Comprehend what's happened in politics in two or three years. I mean, the change is so unbelievably powerful and you can't really predict it where it's going. All you know is even in the world of finance and what people make and don't make in, in, the, in the professional world, and you look at what's happening with in the PGA, they wanna start another whole professional tour and try to bury the PGA and they're trying to get all the players to go one way or the other way. And this is like, are you kidding me? Why is this happening? And there's a ton of money behind it. Look at what happened in the two years since COVID. You know, it's like when you look at the change that has occurred, in a sense, the change has been a gift because we're now better prepared to handle the next COVID. If you're still cussing COVID, you know, it's probably always going to be, you know, an anvil around your neck that you're never going to be able to get over. But there are a lot of people who've taken advantage of this and have looked at ways to kind of reignite virtual interactions with people and the whole Zoom, the thing we're doing now probably would never have happened had it not been for COVID. Inside of every storm is an opportunity to learn and to adapt because that's, and we're gonna to have to learn to adapt more quickly. Every single day is, a, is another opportunity to become more nimble, to see things in a little different way and to look for advantages. And that way we'll be part of the future. And so I really uh, adapt or perish. That's kind of the way I really think the reality of things are going and then try to stay ahead of it. Don't cuss it. If you can, if you can influence the outcome, influence it. But if you can't, try to figure out where is it going and be ready when it lands so you're not caught completely just unprepared for what's about to come down in your life, whether it's a college coach or a college administration or how the college thing is going to really play itself out. Stay tuned in. Watch what's happening. Be a good predictor and be ready with alternatives, no matter what happens. That's kind of the way I think we have to run our life now. 
Yeah, and then Dr. Lehrer, on our last interview, we discussed kind of the coaches, players' reluctance to work on the mental side of the game, but they also at the same time will acknowledge, <laughs> I lost that match because of my mental game or my mental game needs more work. Uh, but, but I think a lot of coaches, players haven't quite found a way to bridge that gap and actually be intentional about and devote time in their schedule on a, on a weekly basis. So one of our new partners is APEAK, and you've been very involved with this organization in recent times. Can you tell us a little bit about the app, why you got involved and why it might be the solution that a lot of coaches and players are, are looking for right now? So from my earliest days, it's been an uphill battle. It's been a mountain to climb always that players are reluctant to even accept the idea that there's such a thing as mental training because for so long, it was just assumed they either had it or you didn't. And there wasn't anything you could do about it. There's some mystery between your ears that either enables you to perform well or not. If you don't have it, you're kind of, you know, bad luck, buddy, but there's not a whole lot you can do about it. And then the notion started to become a little bit more acceptable. The idea of mental fitness or then eventually mental toughness began to get a little bit more acceptance. And my whole life, I've tried to make mental training more accessible so that it actually is understandable. It's not so bloody mysterious. So it's like, I try to take it and create the same kind of architecture that they have around the physical training, where you have regular training sessions, you know exactly what you're doing, you have specific protocols, and uh, the more you follow them, the better you get, you know, just like you're coding motor neurons, when you're working on your forehand, backhand, or whatever, serve and volley, you're coding these uh, neurons in your brain with this substance called myelin, and you're myelinating these highways into your brain that actually connect to better decision-making, to focus, concentration, all the things that um, resiliency, a lot of the things that change uh, a player's ability to compete under pressure. And this is it has, there's no, there's no way you just get it by hoping you have it. You have to do the heavy lifting, just like to get great biceps and triceps, you have to go in and do some extraordinary work. Some people have had great coaches in their life who have taught them a lot about how the brain really works. And they've done it kind of almost intuitively. And they've been around great parents who've really helped them create the right kind of balance of pressure and relaxation and fun. And, but most everyone has room to improve. And what I've been approached by a lot of groups to try to do something online with mental training. And I thought it was a great idea, but when I looked at what they were doing, I, I'm sorry, I just, and even with AP, when Brian approached me, I didn't even look at it. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm just, I'm not that convinced it can be done yet. And so he came back to me and then he came back to me again. And I said, you know, Brian's a pretty persistent guy. Let me see what they have and I'll see. And instantly I really responded to Brian. He's a very smart young man. He's very dedicated. He was an outstanding coach, outstanding player. He really understands the game. And when I got into what I saw, I was like really taken. I said, wait a minute. And then I came to understand he had thought a lot of my work already in his design. And I said, you know, this pretty much follows the way my brain works. 
and how I work with players and the idea of having kind of a, an online approach to something that's deeply personal. And you can do the, you can do the workouts on your own without having to have a, your own private sports psychologist and go through all that. That was very appealing to me. The idea you could scale this, you could scale it to teams and individuals anywhere in the world. So I said, okay, I'm going to jump in. I'll jump in with both feet and I'll give you all the insights I have. And so the, the program as it exists is the best that I know I could do. It's, you know, it's like, and they've been very receptive to any change, any of the suggestions and new directions that I have recommended. They have jumped on and they have brilliant coders. The, just everything they've done has been so thoughtful. So I'm honored to be part of it. And I'm very hopeful. This will be the beginning of kind of a new era of mental training where it's accessible. They can see it. You can test it. You can do uh, pre and post testing. You can see what which of these protocols work best for you. Is it with music? What kind of voice? What kind of imagery? What kind of writing? All the tools, whether you listen to your own voice through voice messaging, you listen to my voice, you listen to a female voice, whatever it is, you can figure out which of these training tools actually works best for you. And you test it out because you're going to play a match tomorrow and you start working this territory. And I'm very excited that I think folks are going to really say, you know, this is worth it. It's relatively uh, affordable for sure. And I'm, I'm very impressed with the kind of commitment that Brian and his team have had to doing something that's never been done in sport. And I think it actually holds the potential to go into lots of sports and to actually make this accessible to a wide variety of people. So I'm, I feel privileged to be part of them and uh, hope that I, uh, I'll see a lot of good evidence that really coaches, teams, and individuals can say, you know, that's made a big difference in my ability to compete in sport and also to be a better, better person under pressure in any area of my life, whether it's school, whether it's um, on a board and as a, as a executive in some big, you know, important business situation, these are life skills and the skills can be applied to anything that anyone does for the rest of their life. Yeah, we're, we're super excited about the, the product as well. I mean, if I was still coaching, absolutely, I'd have my players tested and trial it. And, and I think many of them would, would engage. As we were talking earlier, they're on their phones anyway. They might as well be, <laughs> be getting some value out of their time on their phone. And it's not a, it's not a huge ask, right? It could be seven minutes a day that they're yeah, doing. just a short amount of time. You know, right. it's just like going into the gym, the mental gym, doing a quick workout and get back out on the court and say, you know, I actually feel better today because I did that. Yeah. That's yeah. how it works. It's as simple as that. You work that part of your brain a little more that it normally gets worked and you learn how to control those emotions. You learn how to control your thoughts. You get a little better present focused. It's a skill and you hone it with practice. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Lair, thank you so much for all your time again today. It means uh, the world to the ITA and, and our coaches. I know your time's extremely valuable. So we hope to maybe do this again in another year or so, but thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. And I've said it before and it's a, absolute uh, truth for me. I have such respect for collegiate coaches and uh, for the contribution you make in these 
young players, men and women's lives. And I, uh, I've always, you know, try to commit as much time as I could, uh, any insights that I have to share them. So thanks for all that you all do for tennis. You make a huge contribution to tennis and to the lives of so many. So I'm on your, uh, I'm on your team and I, I hope you all succeed big, big time. So thank you.